So let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for another Lord's Day that you've given us. We thank you for the means of grace you've given us in your church. You've given us Christ. You've given us your spirit and the church that you are building today all around the world as believers have gathered to worship and to learn and hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, remind us of these truths that are important to us and foundational for us. Lord, help our minds and our hearts to engage with this. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. This is our starting point this morning, Hebrews chapter 1. Because as we begin to think about the topic of biblical authority, inspiration, and sufficiency, I think a worthwhile starting point is just to ask the question, well, how does God speak? In general, if someone were to ask you, well, how does God speak to people today? Well, I think that Hebrews chapter 1 gives us part of that answer. This is just our starting point. It's not the main point today. But I'll just read the first two verses. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So what is this telling us? Well, I think it's telling us, uh, at least in some sense, that we could say that there's two categories of God's special revelation. Now, we're not talking about general revelation in the sense that God has revealed something about himself in creation. That's true, but we're talking about his special revelation. And the first category that he has spoken to us is in his revealed word. And that takes several forms, which these verses speak to. Verse 1 says, many portions and in many ways God had spoken in the past. Well, what does that entail? What does that mean? Well, a few things that I, I might say. Uh, first of all, decree is on your handout. Now, this is not decree used in the sense of the eternal decree or the decree of redemption or the decree of election. This is a slightly different use of the word decree. This is simply a word of God that causes something to happen. You think about Genesis chapter 1, God brought forth creation by speaking. That's a one way he's revealed himself. And even now, if we were to read the next verse, Hebrews 1, 3, it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So God has decreed, spoken creation into existence, and he's also upholding it, sustaining it, even now, by the word of his power. That's one way God reveals himself in his word. Several other ways, uh, we can think of many occasions, especially in the Old Testament, where God revealed himself through um, personal address, words of personal address, God directly speaking to various people in the Old Testament. Of course, we know that he spoke directly to Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke directly to Moses on multiple occasions. A New Testament example of this would have been that God spoke uh, publicly to the crowd at Jesus' baptism. People could hear the voice of God. And Jesus was baptized. So words of personal address. But then we have uh, two kind of related categories, words spoken through human lips and then written words. These are all the ways that God revealed himself basically through the writers of the Old Testament. 
Sometimes he told the various writers of the Old Testament, prophets, patriarchs, write these things down. The Lord says this to his people, write this down. Or he speaks to those, some of those same men and tells them to say certain things to his people. You know, say these things. There's many occasions of that in the Old Testament. Also in the New Testament, you think about written words. Um, that would be the category that John received the kind of the book of Revelation. Initially, the Lord said to the spirits of the churches in Asia, write these things down. So written words given from Jesus to the church. So just very briefly, I think these constitute those many portions in many ways that God spoke, as verse 1 says. But then verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So the second category of special revelation is that God has spoken to us in Christ, in his Son. I think that part of what the writer is saying here is that throughout redemptive history, God's revelation was progressing. Not progressing from less worthy to more worthy, or from, um, from lesser to greater, but progressing from promise to fulfillment. Because throughout the words of the Old Testament, we're, we're receiving glimpses of what God was ultimately going to do in sending his son. He was continuing to reveal more and more of what he was going to do to redeem his people. And eventually that redemption comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He's spoken to us in his son. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament was ultimately pointing toward. He's the final word spoken by God, the climax, if you will, of God's special revelation. And why this is important is that this should tell us that since God has revealed himself ultimately and finally in Christ, and of course Jesus is fully revealed to us in the New Testament, we don't need to be expecting any further revelation from God. God's revelation was progressing and it has concluded. Um, of course, the key in all of this is that it's God who's speaking. In all these ways, throughout the scripture, and, in, and then in Christ, God is the one who's revealing these things. So, if we were to go to the next item on your handout, since it's God who's speaking, well, this is a good time to define biblical authority. I think you have a fill in the blank. I'll give you this definition of biblical authority. This is actually Wayne Grudem's definition, and it says this. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. I'll read that again. All the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So this is telling us that God's words are authoritative. Now let's demonstrate that. If that's our definition, let's demonstrate it. Turn back to Deuteronomy. We'll work our way forward back into the New Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's see what the Old Testament says about the authority of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'll read verses 1 through 3. 
And of course, the context here is, this is, of course, Deuteronomy is basically a long sermon given by Moses, also the kind of the second giving of the law. So Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord." So what does this have to say about the authority of God's word? Well, this is interesting to me in that Moses is describing one of the reasons why God allowed his people Israel to be tested in the wilderness. Why do they undergo this ordeal for so many years wandering in the wilderness, sometimes being hungry? Of course, God was faithful to feed them, gave them manna, as the text says. It says that one of the reasons that they experienced this was that they would understand that they didn't live by bread alone. Their lives in the desert were not just sustained by the food that God gave them, but instead they needed to understand that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So I think one way to put this might be that God's words should always sustain God's people. What does it mean to be sustained by something? Well, you can think about food or sustenance sustains our bodies. We can't live without food. We know that. But I think in some sense Moses is trying to get Israel to understand that as much as food is necessary to life, God's word is also necessary for life. In some sense, they can't live without it. They shouldn't think that they can live without it. And of course, we know that this was the text that Jesus referred to when he was tempted in the wilderness, his own wilderness experience. When the devil tempted him to turn the stones to bread, this was the text that Jesus referred to, knowing that he he wasn't just going to be ruled by his stomach, right? That he was ruled by God's word first and foremost. Perhaps another way to say it is that life with a full stomach but without the words of God is really no life at all. But God's word is authoritative because it should sustain us. It should sustain our lives. Flip forward some chapters to Deuteronomy 32. Look at another passage. This now coming towards the end of Moses' life. He knows that he's going to be dying and he's not going to get to cross over into the promised land. And so in some sense, I think this passage at the end of Deuteronomy are kind of Moses' last words. And you kind of think about last words. What are those things that are most important that you want your loved ones to hear from you before you die? So here's a few verses. Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 47. Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua the son of Nun. 
When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you, indeed, it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So what is it that Moses wanted his people to understand? That God's word, in particular God's law, was actually their life. Now how did that make sense to them? Well, we understand that God's word, his law, his covenant, was a two-edged sword. It came with promises, blessing, but it also came with curses. And that if Israel was to obey and be blessed, they had to obey God's word. They had to keep the covenant that God had made with them, and they would be blessed, and their life would be prolonged in the land. But if they disobeyed, if they didn't keep God's word, keep God's law, then they were at risk of being cut off from Israel, cut off from the life of God's people. In a real sense, heeding God's word for Israel was literally a life or death proposition. We'll actually see that in some sense played out in the sermon today that Pastor Keith is going to bring. But is this true for us as well in our day? Well, I think so. Not in the sense that if we disobey God's word, we're cut off from God's people. But for us, the reality is God's covenant to us in the new covenant, the gospel, is just every bit of a life and death proposition for us. If we are to live, we must believe, receive, and obey the gospel. If we don't, well, then that's eternal death for us. I think it's every bit as authoritative for us to understand that God's word is not an idle word for us, but it is in fact our life. It's the life of God's people. Flip forward to 2 Samuel. See another example from the Old Testament, this time from David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The context here is God has just made his covenant with David. And in this kind of prayer of response, David is worshiping, praising God for the covenant that God has made with him. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 27 through 29. David says this, For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made a revelation to thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words are truth. And thou hast promised this good thing to thy servant. Now therefore may it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, have spoken... And with thy blessing, may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. So here I want to make a connection between the authority of and the truthfulness of God's word. We'll see more of this later on. But in this case, why is David able to place his faith in what God has told him? Why is he able to believe that the covenant that God has made with him is sure and to be trusted and will not fail? Well, in some sense, you might think, well, maybe it's because David, growing up as he did in a good Hebrew family, 
He would have received training as a child, and he also probably had seen many examples of in his, in his life leading up to this point of God being faithful to him. Just like many of us may have grown up in good Christian homes, not all of us, some of us did, but we also probably have seen many examples in our own life of God being faithful to us. But that's not really what David places his faith in. He simply says in verse 28, he's not basing it on his prior experience, he's basing it on the fact that, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words are truth. I think he's making a connection between God's word and his character. The reason he can believe what God has said and the reason that he knows that what God has said is true is because it's bound up in who God is. It is God's character to speak truth. So this is David's testimony to God's word, that God's words are truth. And that also might make us think again of Jesus, this time John chapter 17. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus effectively says the same thing. Thy words are truth. So this is David's view, at least one view here, of the truthfulness of and the authority of God's word. So three examples, there could be others I could give, but I guess I'm trying to kind of give an overview more so than hone in to just one place. So let's actually ask the question, well, if this was David and Moses' view of God's word, how they viewed what God had said, well, what did the apostles think about the Old Testament? What was their view of the Old Testament? Because, of course, that was the only testament that they had, right? They didn't have the New Testament. They'd be writing it soon enough. But what was the apostles' view of the Old Testament? Turn to the book of Acts, and we will look at several examples from the apostolic preaching that I think answers the question, what was the apostles' view of the Old Testament? And I'll just give a quick disclaimer that normally here at Calvary, we don't want to kind of take texts out of context, and it may seem like I'm doing that now. But we're going to look at six different verses from the book of Acts, but all kind of in rapid succession, one after the other. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think that if we were reading these in isolation, we might not pick up on the theme that's going to emerge here. But just have nimble fingers, and I'm just going to read these one after the other and see if you can kind of pick up on the theme that we're hearing. So Acts 1, verse 16, first of all, this is Peter speaking in the upper room. Acts 1.16, he says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So we're not concerned about Judas or Jesus' arrest, per se. We're concerned with the fact that Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit foretold something by the mouth of David. Okay? Keep that in mind. Flip over the page, chapter 2. Verse 16 and 17. This is also Peter. This is Pentecost, of course. He says this, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. So again, we're not concerned about the dreams and the visions. We should pick up on the fact that Peter says this was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and then right 
in the first part of it in verse 17, he says, well, this is also something that God says. And it shall be in the last days, God says. So Joel has said something, but God has also said something. Flip over the page, chapter 3, verse 18. This is also Peter. It says this, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. So I, I hope you're seeing the theme now. God has said this as announced beforehand, but it's by the mouth of the prophets. Keep going. Chapter 4, verse 25. This is now Peter and John, I think, together. And they say, actually, I'll start in verse 24, 424. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 2. So what is Peter saying here? He is saying that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, and then he quotes the psalm. Two more examples. Chapter 13, verse 47. This is now Paul. 1347 says this, For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, so that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. So there he's quoting from Isaiah. So Paul says, the Lord has commanded us, and then he quotes from the book of Isaiah. One more example. End of the book, chapter 28. Paul again, verses 25 through 27. I might not read all of those, but uh, 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, and then he quotes from Isaiah. So I hope it's clear and not confusing. I think it's clear that the apostles' consistent witness about the Old Testament was that God was speaking, but also men were speaking. Isaiah, David, Joel, and others. He's attributing the prophet's words, writings, to them, but also saying that God says this. Now, really, I find that fascinating because it seems to me that the apostles understood almost everything that we understand about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And the things, most of the kind of foundational things we understand about the inspiration of Scripture come from Paul's writings and his epistles, which hadn't been written down yet. So how was it that the apostles knew that the Old Testament were the men's words, but also God's words. How did they know that? How did they know that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through those men? Well, I do think that's a good question, but I'm not going to answer it this week. I'm going to answer it next week. So just think about that. But this is the apostles' view of the Old Testament. It's the words of men, but it's also the words of God, which is a good segue to inspiration. Your next definition on your handout. Here is a definition of inspiration. This is from Edward Young. Not the Ed Young on Grapevine, by the way. I would never quote him. This is Edward Young, the Westminster theologian, um, who says this, the inspiration can be defined like this. The superintendence 
of God the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture, as a result of which those Scriptures possess divine authority and trustworthiness, and possessing such divine authority and trustworthiness are free from error. I'll read it one more time. The superintendence of God the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture as a result of which those scriptures possess divine authority and trustworthiness and possessing such divine authority and trustworthiness are free from error. So the distinction that's being made here relative to simply looking at authority like in our first point um, is that inspiration begins to speak to the manner in which God in using human instruments revealed that authoritative message. To demonstrate this, let's go to the New Testament further ahead, 2 Timothy 3, a very familiar passage, I'm sure, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. We're actually going to look at verse 15 later on, I'm just going to read 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So again, very familiar. And the NAS here says inspired. And if you have the ESV, it literally says God breathed or breathed out by God. That's what that Greek word means, that all scripture is in some sense breathed out. It's God's own breath. This is how God has revealed his word. I think what Paul is getting at here is the origin of scripture. Where does it ultimately come from? Well, from God. And as we'll see in the next passage, particularly not just God as a block, but God the Holy Spirit. I think it's also important to note that Paul is making it clear that God's breathing out of scripture is not just a breathing out of concepts or ideas or principles, but it's the words themselves. It's the words themselves that are inspired, and this tells us a few useful things. Um, the doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean that the human writer was inspired, as in everything that that man wrote was inspired, no. But it's these particular words that we have in our Bibles Inspiration is focused on the words, not the person. Secondly, the doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean that the words are inspired because they inspire us, or because we somehow find the Bible inspirational. We probably do find it inspirational, but that's not what inspiration really speaks to. It's the words themselves. And then this kind of preempts what I'm going to say in a few moments about inerrancy. Um, but again, since it's the words that God has breathed out, it's the words themselves, not simply concepts or precepts or principles. It's focused on the words. Scripture is God-breathed. All right, we'll come back to that text in a few minutes. Flip forward a second, Peter. The other very well-known text about inspiration, Second Peter 1. Verses 20 and 21, where Peter says this, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. 
for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now I think this continues to kind of shed further light on how was it that God breathed out his word through men as they wrote it down. Well, it says very plainly that it was not made by an act of human will. This was not simply something that Paul or Peter or John, oh, I have a good thought here, I need to get this down. No, it doesn't originate from them, but it says it was men moved by the Holy Spirit, or another way to say it is men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what did that really look like? How did that work? Well, we don't really know as to the mechanics of how that happened, but I think the word that Peter uses here can give us a bit of an illustration. When he says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that word in Greek there that is translated moved by or carried along is the same word that Luke uses in Acts chapter 27. Think back to when Paul was aboard ship being taken to Rome. There's a storm at sea. The ship's coming apart. They're trying to hold it together. Let me just read Acts 27, 17. Talking about trying to handle the ship. It says, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. That phrase, driven along, is the same Greek word that Peter uses here. So I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of the way that the wind moves a ship. Is it the wind or the sail that moves the ship? Which one? Oh, I have both. It's because it's, I think it takes both. The wind is blowing, that's necessary. But if there's no sail there, the ship's not going anywhere, right? I think this illustrates for us um, that you have to have both. But of course, the power, the impetus is, of course, the wind. The sail isn't originating that. So in some sense, I think we can understand that it's the Spirit is moving these men. Both are necessary. Both are integral to the process. But the power, the force, the message comes from the Spirit. But the men are just as integral as being his instruments in moving along the human altar. So... All that said, I think there's three important implications to draw from what we've seen so far. First of all, I would say dual authorship. It's, I think there's blanks for this on your handout if you want to write it down. Dual authorship, what does this mean? It means that, um, as I said, God and the human writer, it can be considered dual authorship, but God is the ultimate author. He's the ultimate author of Scripture. But at the same time, the human writers were not just an automaton, not just a mechanical device simply taking down dictation, although sometimes dictation was in view. But the inspired writer was a real person found in a real culture with a real background, real, real character traits, distinct personality, distinct gifts, 
And the amazing thing is, all of those things come through in their writings. You know, Paul doesn't sound like John. And Paul in Galatians doesn't sound like Paul in 2 Timothy. Isaiah apparently doesn't sound like Amos if you know Hebrew. Of course, I don't. But the amazing thing is God reveals his message to these men, but it's also exactly what the men wanted to say. Of course, you can't put a ratio on it and say that it's 50% man or 50% God or 100% man or 100% God. You can't. You can't make it that simplistic. But dual authorship means that we can't neglect the fact that the Bible, while it's God is the ultimate author, it's also just as true to say that men wrote the Bible. Real men, Moses and David and Luke and others, Paul and Peter. Secondly, and I've already touched on this, um, but this is what uh, theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. What does that mean? Again, this speaks to the words. Verbal is the words. It's the words that are inspired. And plenary is not a word we use very often. But if you go to a conference, maybe there's a plenary session of that conference. That means when everyone's there, all together, everyone together, the plenary inspiration means that all of Scripture is equally inspired. Now, that to me is also interesting, considering the great breadth of literature that we have in the Bible. Think about the different genres that we have in Scripture. We have this towering theology from Paul. We have these sublime prayers of the psalmist. We have Jesus' very penetrating discourses. But then we also have these minutiae of laws in Leviticus. We have architectural details and specifications for the temple. We have these huge genealogies and chronicles. And we have some bizarre and puzzling prophecies. But all of that is just as authoritative, just as inspired. And I think maybe we should take the conclusion that in some sense it should be just as useful. Now admittedly, if you spend a month doing quiet times and chronicles genealogies, you might not profit from that as much as, well... There's a balance for sure. But I think it does help us, or reminds me, that we shouldn't neglect any part of our Bibles. It's equally authoritative, equally inspired, and it's all there for a reason. And all of it breathed out by God as men were carried along by the Spirit. And finally, the third implication here is inerrancy. Inerrancy which simply means that the Bible is entirely true and contains no falsehood. And one pastor has also defined inerrancy simply as the lordship of God in his word. We must not be deceived by that human kind of reasoning that says that simply because sinful men were used in writing down the scripture, somehow error must have crept into their writings just because they were sinful men and women. Men. It's true that the doctrine of inerrancy could be an entire series of lessons, but I just want to kind of keep it simple today and say fundamentally two things about inerrancy. First of all, inerrancy is founded on two simple things for me. It's founded upon God's character, first of all, 
not the character of the human instruments that God used in writing the scripture. If we begin to say that error could have crept into the writing of scripture, for me that's saying a lot more about God's character than about the men's character who wrote it down. Elsewhere in scripture we know from Titus 1 and Hebrews 6 that God cannot lie. When God speaks, it will only be truth. So inerrancy is founded on God's character. And secondly, this is helpful for me, that the word of God was breathed out by the spirit of God, who is the spirit of truth. Full stop. The word of God was breathed out by the spirit of God, who is the spirit of truth. If we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the word, and if we believe that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, then we have an inerrant Bible, period. I think it is that simple. Now, it requires the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, within us, illuminating to us that that is true, testifying with us that that is true. I mean, largely, I think the reason why liberal scholars don't have any problem saying the Bible is full of errors, they're not regenerate believers. We shouldn't be surprised if they say the Bible is not true. It was inspired by the spirit of truth. Um, if we begin to think the Bible has errors, then I think that not only has grave implications for our doctrine of scripture, but also for our doctrine of God. Um, now, that's not to gloss over the fact that, yes, there are difficult passages in the Bible. You can say that there are some problem areas. Yes, that's true. But I think as believers that hold the inerrancy, we simply have to conclude that as much as those problems might be there in some places, we're not confounded by that. We just might not yet know what the resolution of that problem is. Given time and diligent study by evangelical scholars, we may find out the answers to those. We might not. But in any event, we base our, the trustworthiness of the Bible on the fact that it was breathed out by the spirit of truth. So, last section, sufficiency. Flip back to 2 Timothy again. 2 Timothy chapter 3 again. Now, I would like to think that most evangelical churches, really all evangelical churches, should affirm the first two points I just made of authority and inspiration. Not all evangelical churches might not hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of the, the fact that the Scripture was sufficient, that was actually something I had never heard until I came to Calvary almost 10 years ago. I had grown up in the church, and that had never crossed my radar find that interesting. So how do we define sufficiency? Uh, here's a definition from a man named Ken Sarles. It says, the word of God used by the spirit of God is sufficient to resolve all spiritual, psychological, and relational problems of the child of God. The word of God used by the spirit of God is sufficient to resolve all spiritual, psychological, and relational problems of the child of God. So practically, well, let's demonstrate it before we talk practical. 
Um, I'll now read 2 Timothy 3.15, if I can be in 2 Timothy. Here's Paul um, talking, writing to Timothy about his childhood. He says that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So this just very simply, I want to make the point um, that the scripture fundamentally at a very kind of foundational level is sufficient to resolve the biggest problem that human beings have. And what is the biggest problem that people have? It's a three-letter word. Sin, right? In the sense that it's sufficient to resolve that problem of sin because it's in the Bible that we have the gospel revealed to us in plain language. We would not know the gospel. We would not know the fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous, and gave himself for us, for sinners. We would not know the truth of the gospel if it wasn't for the word. It's able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Um, I think this is what gives full voice to Moses telling Israel that the word of God is their life. That's because the word of God is what has given men and women the ability to know how to have eternal life in Christ by grace through faith. And then if we think about the next two verses, this is also telling us what scripture is sufficient to do. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Which not only does scripture give us a solution to our sin problem in giving us the gospel, but it also gives us everything we need to live lives of faithfulness. It gives us everything we need to live a life of holiness before the face of God. One more passage and we'll be done. Go back to Hebrews. This time Hebrews chapter 4. We'll finish here. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So this passage speaks of, I think, the scripture's power and its sufficiency. First of all, it tells us what the Bible is. It's living and active. What does it mean that the Bible is alive? Well, the first thing it should tell us is that the Bible is the only book that's alive. All the other books we have, as much as I love the books in my library, they're all dead books. As helpful as they might be, and as much as we enjoy so many wonderful writings from great Christian leaders, only the scripture is alive. I think it means that the Bible never needs updating. We're not waiting for the next edition to come out. I think it also means, the Bible being active, that it speaks to whatever time and place it's in. It's always doing its work, whatever culture it's found in, in whosever hands it's in. The Bible is always doing its work. And what is the Bible doing? Well, it says it is like a sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow 
and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, nothing else can really do that, can it? Now, my, my wife knows me really well, and she can see beyond my crusty edges to see the further crustiness that lies beneath. I know my children pretty well. I can see beyond some of the things that they do to kind of see what's really, in some sense, in their heart. Not entirely, of course. But my wife can't judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart the way the Scripture does. I can't do that for my children the way that the Scripture does. We can't do that for each other to the degree that the Scripture does. Importantly, the Scripture is sufficient to expose that which is inside of us. This is why we need the Bible, not just to minister to others, but for our own hearts and our own souls. It helps us see past the nuisance and the nonsense of the culture, see past the indwelling sin that's within us, enables us to live lives of faithfulness and holiness. So to conclude, I think it's true that God has given us a great means of grace in the church. He's given us one another. He's given us his best gift of his son. He's given us kind of the next best gift in the spirit that dwells within us and enables us to understand and apply what we learn in the scripture. But I would say that nothing else has God given us that's quite like this, which is God's own words in our own hands exposing our own hearts. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll be done. Lord, we do praise you for um, your good gifts to us. And perhaps, Lord, we should pray um, for the faith to uh, believe what you've revealed. Believe the truthfulness of it, the authority of it, the inspiration of it, um, and also uh, to believe that we shouldn't simply believe the truth of your word, but we should live out what's contained here. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to enable us to do that. Lord, go with us now as we continue to worship you as you're worthy of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.